I'd invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 8. Our text tonight, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, is not only one of the best-known passages in the Bible, it is also, especially among Reformed Christians, one of the most beloved, especially 828. And this section of Scripture is positively loaded with more doctrinal touchstones than probably any three verses in the Scripture. Within the first 60 seconds of looking at my text for this week as I prepared to preach, I saw seven potential sermons. In a few more minutes, I saw three more. I could have probably kept finding them if I'd have kept looking. But alas, I I only have one sermon to preach these three verses. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to touch lightly on these doctrinal references uh, like uh, I, I think when I was a boy and fishing with my dad, those, those dragonflies would, would jump around on the lily pads. You know, I'd touch, touch, touch. And, and that's what I'm going to be doing tonight with these multiple doctrinal references. And then at the end of it, I'll say what I think the whole of it means for us. So turn with me in your Bibles. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 944 to Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 28 through 30. Hear now the word of our God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray together. Lord, we do know that for those who love you, all things do work together for our good, for all those who are called according to your purpose. Father, we pray you would work for our good this very night, that you would work through your word, that you would use this means of grace, this preached word, to strengthen our faith, to give us resilience in our faith, and to give us joy in our faith. And we pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're going to be preparing for a presbytery exam, Will Keaton. I think Will's listening tonight. I told him I was going to preach about him. You want to be prepared to respond to a question about the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, as it's called. And as you do so, you will need to remember this passage tonight. Because Paul makes it clearer here than really anywhere else that our salvation in Christ is like a a golden chain of blessings that are inextricably linked 
to each other like links in an unbreakable chain. Paul is writing a letter here. He's not writing a theological textbook, so he doesn't include all the possible links in the chain, just some glorious ones that well represent our faith. Foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. So there are some that are not here. Adoption is not here, which almost makes me want to cry. But these are great touchstones of our, of our redemption. However, if we think the main point of this passage that I read a few moments ago is the ordo salutis, the, the doctrinal sequencing of our redemption, then we're quite mistaken. I'll come to what the main point, I think, uh, of this text is shortly. But first, let me issue three, uh, shall we say, I'll be so bold as to say correctives when we come to these most familiar verses. The first corrective is this. These verses do not stand alone like a kind of doctrinal obelisk or marker stone. They are actually an outworking of that theme that was in Pastor Ben's last sermon just, I think, two weeks ago now where he preached about the intercession of the Holy Spirit for us with sighs that are too deep for words. Do you remember how that section he preached on ended, that verse that actually precedes our passage tonight? Verse 27 said, And he who searches hearts, that's God, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so what I want you to see is our our verses tonight represent the mind of the Spirit. I want you to remember that the Spirit of God is not some feeling floating in the air. It is not an amorphous, unfocused influence that's just out there somewhere like a gas. The Spirit of God who is the Holy Spirit, hears our prayers and prays for us to God the Father. He himself is an intelligent person. The Spirit has a mind. We might even say that the Spirit is a mind. And his mind processes all our requests and presents them to the mind of the Father as the perfect request we would make if we knew how to pray perfectly for our own salvation to be worked out in a way that is both good for us and glorifying to God. And that truth, the mind work of the Holy Spirit, the interceding Spirit, dramatically colors what this next super familiar verse says. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What a, what a verse. What a verse this is. But it leads me to my second corrective. You know how we usually use this beloved verse to encourage one another when something hard happens in our lives and must be faced. We say, remember now, all things work together for good. We say that to each other in those times. 
And we say how it is all things that God is using, not just the good stuff, but it's the worst stuff that he's using as well. All things work together for good. And we explain that we, we don't mean by that, that that those events are all inherently good. Uh, some of them are not good at all, but that God, the Bible says, uses it for good. He's working in them for our good. And then we quote the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis about how in his life his conniving brothers meant things for evil against him, but God meant it for good, and so it all worked out to advance him in corporate Egypt until he became the COO under the CEO, the Pharaoh himself. And yes, all that's true. But again, and here is where I think the corrective sometimes is needed, the good that God means here is not for us necessarily to have things work out in a favorable in the favorable manner that the story of Joseph did. I mean, we're not always going to get the job or the physical safety or the spouse or even the reconciliation with others that we may pray for or even something just as good by human metrics. No, the good that comes in Christ is the glory of God in our own redemption which is inherently and essentially spiritual. It is, in fact, what follows verse 28, verses 29 and 30, the golden chain. Now notice the word for at the beginning of verse 29. So this is the good that God is doing in all believers' lives. Verse 28, that good is what follows. It's this good, that our salvation is to be worked out in a way that is ultimately good for us and glorifying to God. It's not that we get all the things we want. It's not that our dreams all come true, albeit on God's secret timetable. No. God is working in all things for our good in that he is working in all things to give us this golden sequence of salvation, this unbreakable progress in Christ-likeness that verses 29 and 30 unfold for us. So that's how these verses then all connect. begins with the purification of our prayers by the Spirit, leading God to work through all the providences of our lives to sovereignly save us to the uttermost, even until we are glorified with Christ in heaven and then perfectly reflective in our Christ-likeness that we can only call glory now. If you don't care about Christ-likeness or sharing in heavenly glory, then brothers and sisters, verse 28 is of no use to you. Final corrective. The highest glory in this passage is not in the doctrinal touchstones that form the golden chain, though they are all glorious. The highest glory is actually in the purpose, the great purpose, that it all serves. Paul mentions that word purpose at the end of verse 28, 
that, quote, God is working for good in the lives of all those who are called according to his purpose. And that purpose is not left undefined here, but is found right here, sandwiched in the middle of the links of the golden chain. Look at verse 29, which follows the uh, which follows this word purpose at the end of 28. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The words, in order that, tell you that the chief purpose and glory of God is this, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus will be the firstborn among many brothers. The doctrines of our redemption are glorious in their own right, no doubt. But the purpose above all the purposes is the church. The beloved community of the forgiven. The eternal fellowship of the spirit-empowered saints who reflect in every way the wonderful character of our head, the firstborn of the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the, the truth that almost seems too good to be true is that God, we might say, is a people person. He's a people person. In his own way, he is a people person. We glory in our redemption, yes, but God glories in us. God is is so self-giving for us from his person through Jesus Christ that it produces what we call this golden chain of blessings to us. But the final purpose of that chain, the final purpose of the Lord, that even all of that sequence of redemption serves, is the gathered church itself, a people conformed to the image of his Son who is the firstborn of the dead. What a glorious thing to think. So now let's be like that dragonfly on the lily pads and touch down briefly on these awesome words of redemption in the great chain of redemption. And it begins in the time before there was time, before the foundations of the world were laid. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. This is the first link in the unbreakable chain of redemption. God foreknew His people doesn't mean he just foresaw their existence. There'd be no particular blessing in God simply plainly foreseeing someone's coming existence. So why mention it here? He also foreknew the wicked in that way. It did them no good. For we know that God, who stands beyond time itself, he knows everything without even having to, quote, look to the future, because you understand it's not future to him. He's already there. He knows it already. Knowledge like that is not what is being described here in verse 29. No, this is like Adam knowing his wife Eve in married love. This is like Amos chapter 3 and verse 2, where God says to Israel, You only have I known. He knew the other nations, but 
This is different. You only have I known. It could be translated, sometimes is, loved or chosen. Out of a fallen race of rebellious creatures, for reasons only he is aware of, God loved us before he created us. He married us before he made us. He set his covenantal love on us before we were. He knew us in intimate knowledge before we existed. He foreknew us and then foreordained his glory to be magnified through our personal redemption in time and space. And all we bring to this equation, dear friends, is our sins, our need for redemption. So you see, this has nothing to do with God foreseeing certain virtuous actions we performed. This has nothing to do with us having faith and then God foreseeing that and rewarding us in advance for our faith. The Bible never says we're saved because of our faith, but that we're saved through our faith. And that faith itself is a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I wish every true Christian would just memorize this one sentence. We were not chosen by God because we have faith. We have faith because we were chosen by God. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Not some of them now, but all of those he foreknew, he predestined. That is, he secured their final destiny in advance. Here it is, in verse 29, the doctrine of our own predestination in black and white. It is biblical. It's inescapable. How can anybody deny this? God secured our glorious end even before our beginning had occurred. I've been saying that for forty, almost 40 years in ministry. I still can, I mean, I'm just amazed by it. I'm astounded by this. Brothers and sisters, this doctrine should warm our hearts. It does no violence to the supposed free will of man, for it compels no one by some exterior force. God's not pulling strings in some mechanical manner, but is instead connected, predestination is connected to the regenerating secret work of the Holy Spirit so that we're changed at the heart level to desire the Lord so we come to him freely, not with compulsion. Nor does predestination impede evangelism and missions, but should spur them on. For if God already has his predestinated elect in the world, what are we waiting on? Let's go harvest them. Nor is predestination the same as fatalism, where we're subject to, you know, blind forces beyond our control. But in fact, we are securely in the hands of a loving God who will not let any of his people fall through his hands, as Jesus himself said. R.C. Sproul once said that the personal nature of election and predestination should only encourage the sinner, not ever discourage them. Salvation is in God's good hands, so no level of our sinfulness makes salvation impossible. The worst sinners can make the best saints because God is the one that does the saving. 
And nobody who truly desires salvation will ever be denied salvation because you understand the very desire for this is, I believe, a fruit of electing grace. If it's sincere and supreme. So the sovereignty of God in salvation and in all things is a refuge for our troubled hearts. It's not a threat. It's not a a problem to be solved. It is the pillow, as Spurgeon said, upon which we lay our heads at night. R.C. Sproul said this, If for one second there was one molecule running around this universe out of control of the sovereignty of God, I would have to surrender to despair. If there is one molecule outside the control of God's sovereignty, then there is no guarantee whatsoever that the promises of God will in fact come to pass. The single molecule may be like the grain of sand in the kidney of Oliver Cromwell that brought down an empire. I didn't know Cromwell died of kidney stones, but I learned that this week. And what are we predestined for and to? Pride in being predestinated? Really? Arrogance that God chose us out of sheer inexplicable grace? No, Paul says in the rest of this verse, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be, Christ might be, the firstborn among many brothers. We are saved and we were predestinated to it in order to become more like Christ Jesus, who was the picture of humility and compassion toward others. And then look at the next link in the golden chain in the first half of verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. I said a moment ago that when he calls us, he changes our hearts And we come. And that call that he gives is an inner call. A call upon the heart. A secret call as our fathers and mothers in the faith used to call it. It typically happens when the public call is made through the preaching of the gospel. Or the witnessing of a saint. Or through going to a Christian concert in my case. The general call, the outward call, can be rejected, often is rejected. But the secret call cannot be refused. It only comes to the elect, you see. It's irresistible. And it's inward. I gave this example, I think it was in Sunday school a few weeks ago, that when my sisters and I were were very small, You know, our mother would come home from nursing work all day and fix a supper for her family. And then as we played outside, she would call out, y'all come on. And we didn't have to be, receive any other words. We knew what that meant. That was the dinner bell ringing. And she didn't have to send anybody to compel us. Oh, no, no. We heard y'all come on, we knew what it meant, and we rushed inside because we had a hunger within us for what she was going to serve us. That's like the effectual call. The public call is y'all come on, but the hunger, that's the effectual call. When God calls us in this way, though we were dead in sins, 
We're made alive. And we respond with faith, promptly and sincerely, as Calvin said. Spiritually, we were as dead as Lazarus in the grave, and like him, our sins had made us stink morally and relationally. But the call of the Son of God is given, Lazarus, come out. And we arise in faith, and we come forth from our spiritual deadness, and we are born anew and born from above by the work of the Spirit. Paul is saying all those who are foreknown in divine love are and predestinated to such a salvation, all those who are predestinated are effectually called to Christ. Everyone. Augustine of Hippo commented on this verse. He said, God elected believers in order that they might believe, not because they had already believed. He enables the belief in his beloved. Brothers and sisters, when human faith is removed from the influence of this wonderful sovereignty of God in our teaching, faith becomes a curse, not a blessing. The story is told about the the Indian mystic Rayo, a Hindu holy man, so-called, who in 1966, and I actually read an article about this this week from an, from an old newspaper. In 1966, he announced that he was going to walk on water. So great was his faith, so great was his spiritual attainment. He got a lot of national attention, and on the day set for the feet, a great crowd paid money to gather around this large pool in Bombay, India, where it was about to occur. The yogi prayerfully prepared himself for the miracle he was about to perform, and then he stepped forward to the edge of the pool. A hush fell over the gathered assembly of observers. Rayo glanced upward to heaven and then stepped forward into the water and immediately plummeted to the pool's depths. Sputtering and dripping wet and furious, he emerged from the pool and he turned angrily to the crowd and said, One of you is an unbeliever. See, fortunately, our salvation's not like that. Because if it were, it would never happen. Just as he didn't walk on water. We're all unbelievers by nature. And when we have faith, it's often weak and trembling. But we are taught in these wonderful verses tonight from Romans that salvation does not depend upon our faith per se, however necessary faith may be, and it is. But it depends on the purposes and work of God himself. He effectually calls us. And when he does so, we do respond with real faith, even if it's trembling. And we are justified. Those whom he called, he also justified. Verse 30. This congregation knows this doctrine so well. When we are justified, it is a, it is a singular act of irrevocable grace on God's part where he sets us in permanent right relationship to himself forever. 
I'm just going to say this much about this great cornerstone of justification. It is not amnesty from God. Amnesty is where a crime is overlooked. Amnesty involves uh, a crime or sin being forgotten. The word amnesty is related to the word amnesia. But our sin is not forgotten or overlooked in our justification in Jesus. Just the opposite. Our sin is dealt with justly in the death of Jesus for us. John Stott once said this, Justification, he said, is an act of justice, of gracious justice. The sins are not forgotten, they are paid for in full. And we are not declared innocent, but free from all liability for our sins. Because God's Son was born, has borne the full penalty of the laws of God that we broke. In other words, we are, as we say, justified by His blood. And finally, we read here, in those whom He justified, He also glorified. The wonderful terminal link of this salvation chain, our predestinated destiny, nothing short of sharing in the glory of God himself in a way that it's even hard to talk about while you're standing on the earth. It is our future in Christ, beloved. This is the last link of the golden chain, the finished result of the finished work of God's Messiah, a glorified human race, New Jerusalem, with Jesus as the firstborn among many brothers. And yet, did you notice this, that this future glory of which I speak is described in the past tense? Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is going on here? I think this is done for two reasons. First, it is so certain an event. It is so unalterable for all those who've been saved by the previous links of that salvation chain that though it's still in the future, it's as though it's already accomplished for us. You know, it's like getting a a massive personal check that you have not yet cashed But you're already saying, man, I am rich. And you're right, even though you have no money in your pocket. We are glorified in Christ because we will most assuredly, most certainly, with the very oath of God attached to it, be glorified with him in the new heavens and the new earth. First John says, we will be like him when we see him. And there's a second way that it is right to use this past tense for this glorious word, no pun intended. In the lives of true believers, the future that we're approaching is already, in a manner hard to describe, leaking into the present as our faith increasingly lays hold of what is to come. Consider this awesome verse from 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being, listen, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Saints are glorious. Not in ways that the world recognizes at all is utterly veiled to them. But to other believers, to other Christians, their glory is obvious. Some of you, no, many of you, I don't know all of you here, many of you, so many of you are glorious to me. I see you. I see you and I do behold the glory of God. What a glorious chain we have here that includes such things as divine foreknowledge. God didn't have to tell us that. Predestination, effectual calling, justification, and eventual glorification. It is a golden chain because it is beautiful and worth more than any created thing. And it's a chain because it's unbreakable. And what I want you to walk out this evening thinking about after the end of this service is that it is unbreakable. It's a whole package or it is nothing. If you get one, you get them all. My daughter Rebecca said to me this week, uh, Dad, when I saw your sermon title, I thought you were talking about saving turkeys. Now, I'm not talking about turkey salvation. What I'm talking about is turnkey salvation. You know what a turnkey uh, situation is. If a property is being sold, is advertised as turnkey. It comes complete and ready to be enjoyed. It lacks nothing, no work to do. It's ready to be moved in and enjoyed, full and complete, once you have the key. But, beloved in the Lord, we, in fact, have... A turnkey salvation in Jesus Christ. Every single link of our salvation has been secured in him. This golden chain of blessing is not like a woman's charm bracelet where you, you know, may have some of the charms you want, but not all of them yet. That's not, it's not like that. In Christ, you have everything. If you have any one of these links, then you have them all. The most troubled Christian with the weakest and most tremulous faith was chosen by God before the foundation of the world and will be glorified inexpressibly in Christ. And that Christian, like all who believe, will be conformed to the image of God's beloved Son so that Wherever we look in heaven, every face we see, we will simply want to say glory to God and glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let us pray. Our Father, we are apt to grow restless and discouraged at the slow progress that we make towards Christ-likeness. But you tell us in these verses that you are working everything for our good, this particular good of the 
golden chain and sequence of salvation. What a joy to think this way. Father, would you reform our thinking so that we understand the fullness and completeness of our redemption. Help us to know, Lord, we already have it all. And we will have it all in our glorious condition in heaven. Father, we we would remember that the woman with a hemorrhage took hold of the hem of his garment. And in a moment there, she had all of Christ and was healed. Thank you for giving us all of Christ, all his blessings. We could not add a thing to this. And we bless you for working all things that happen in our lives for our good and our growth in grace that we might share in the very image of Christ in this life partially and fully in the life to come. What a gospel. We thank you for these precious words of Scripture and ask your blessing on us as we go tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction? Hear these words now from God and his word to his people. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working that in you which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory and honor through all the ages. Amen.